Marini's Media. Yes, hello, happy Thursday. Welcome to the Totally Football League show, Extra Time in association with Paddy Power. I'm Ali Maxwell. On the line with me is George Ellick. Never a dull week in the EFL, George. This feels like something potentially of a record breaker in terms of things to talk about. What have we got lined up for the show today? Yeah, for one of the first times, uh, at least since we've been doing this, the Premier League news and the EFL news seems to be all joined together. Everyone's talking about Project Big Picture, which lasted about two days, and obviously the developing stories around coronavirus and football with match postponements and the like. So we put our heads together, thought who best to talk to about both things, and Tranmere Rovers chairman Mark Palios. On pitch, it's Barnsley's new caretaker manager, Adam Murray, who's taken charge now in the interim as Gerhard Struber has swapped Barnsley for Manhattan. And finally, as ever, Ali and I go through our most exciting games of the weekend with our sponsors, Paddy Power. Let's get our teeth into it all. You are listening to the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, in association with Paddy Power. This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash league show. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. For those who may have missed it last Saturday, Tranmere Rovers drew two all with Salford, but it wasn't without uh, a, a fairly big event pre-game with Nicola Palios tweeting that due to COVID and due to other issues, they were unsure if they would be able to fulfil the fixture, but due to concerns that they may incur a 15-point deduction, they went ahead playing a, a weakened side. So they got the, the tool draw, but it caused a fair bit of conversation and concern about consistencies when it comes to restrictions and whether or not games can go ahead, especially with Crew Alexandra having called their game against Oxford uh, off twice and also Grimsby not playing any games for, for two weeks. So we thought it was good to speak to Tranmere Rovers chairman Mark Palios both about what happened last Saturday and about Project Big Picture of which he has been a, a pretty vocal um, voice in the media this week speaking out against it. So we're very grateful to your time today Mark. Thank you for joining us. Um, firstly I want to ask how is the, the health of the players and staff at, at Tranmere Rovers? We've got a few different topics to touch on today but the club confirmed that, that two players tested positive for coronavirus and are isolating. Um, has there been any further spreading or are the rest of the players and staff members able to train and, and get ready for the game against Newport this weekend? Uh, well, I won't give you any in, inside info as regards the uh, team for Newport. But um, no, it, look, it, it's, it was a situation which we had a number of players who had to sort of um, quarantine. Uh, we had two positive tests. We haven't had any um, further positive tests since. 
Um, but the very fact that we had to sort of quarantine the players uh, and, and there had been a, one of the youth team that also had an issue with other players who were on the fringes of the first team had to be um, isolated as well. So um, it, it, was not a, it was not a good situation. We had an international call-up as well and we, we've got our normal sort of spate of injuries. So we, we, we were sort of 10 players down for the weekend. And um, you know, that that's a situation that we were in, and we took a judge. We made the judgment call, um, and and what we're we're asking for now is clarity as to what what is the situation as regards um, when you can or can't play a fixture safely, because to put it on the on the on the on the toes of the clubs, I think is is unfair without proper and pragmatic um, rules that you can follow. If, for example, you know, what's the difference if, if, if you can call a game off because you've got three international call-ups and yet you've got, well, six out of ten related to COVID uh, and one related to an international call-up and three related to injuries. So, you know, what's the difference between that and an international call-up? Well, what we're doing is trying to adhere to um, what everybody, I think, in society right across the globe um, respects and that is to keep everybody safe and that kind of brings me on to what I was going to ask you next is because you look at the crew Oxford game at Oxford that's been called off twice in a matter of two weeks both times hours before the game has been due to start you look at Grimsby who didn't play for two weeks after positive results there and um, you know the the statement from, from Tranmere on Saturday was that you feared that if you did cancel the game and you didn't fulfill the fixture there was a potential points deduction so that uncertainty, I mean, do you have any clarity as to why certain cases seem to be able to, to develop quickly and we see pictures postponed and why on Saturday you felt like you couldn't do that? Uh, no, I don't really, George, and that, you know, because I'm not party to you know, the circumstances around those individual clubs. Um, part of the message that was coming across to us was that these clubs had got medical advice that it was unsafe to play. I don't know what the circumstances of that are. But, you know, we were told that if you've got, if you can fill your team with youth players you've got enough players to play sort of thing and it was that type of attitude that that came across and you know we, we looked at it and we thought you know on the balance I'll take my chances on the pitch um as opposed to taking my chances in, in front of a tribunal because it's just unacceptable you know we could we could have called the game off um and we would have had sort of potentially and I say potentially we qualified everything we said which is why it was disappointing that the EFL put a statement out saying that we were seriously misleading because we weren't uh, and every comment is qualified with potentially or up to and that is right and they confirmed that later on in their statement and then actually in, in terms of seriously misleading their statement was seriously misleading because they just ignored the fact that we'd contacted and no, no, rather than ignore it they said we haven't contacted them and asked them about it well they should check in the bowels of the uh, the, the, the organisation I've seen this before with places and the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing on the basis that we had contacted them at least six occasions so you know why did they do that why did they rush out a statement it was actually and, and you know I'm not looking for an apology but you know, no, no apology has been forthcoming but they clearly made an erroneous statement about us and accused us of being misleading a bit ironic really Mark uh, Project Big Picture has dominated uh, discourse and headlines and Everything really this week. Um, in the end, yesterday, the Premier League clubs voted against Project Big Picture. You called it a good day for football uh, following that news on, on Twitter. Uh, it, it had been reported that 90% of EFL clubs were in favour, or partially in favour at least. Um, clearly not yourself. 
this is something that we've all been thinking and talking about so much this week. I wonder if you could uh, sum up your thoughts on that proposal and why you were against it. And also, if you can, why you think so many of your peers were in favor of it. Well, there's a lot in that, Ali. Um, the first thing is that, yes, I was clearly against it and I felt it was it was important to to make the statement as to why I was against it. And and if I can just say that, you know, um, for me, oh, where do I start on this? It was so long. It, it, <laughs> it, it, I, I, could, I, I could give you a sort of a, an analogy that probably is inappropriate on the radio, but it was so long in so many ways. For any restructuring professional, this whole proposal committed two mortal sins. It's a combination of a lack of leadership and a stakeholder map that's complex. Now, when you get those two together, you know, it's a lethal cocktail. And so that gets filled by self-interest. And that's exactly what's happened here. And that's why we've come to the end of the window and we've not actually solved any of the problems. So the PFA have gone away, the players have been paid, and hey, look, they made a start again. And when they made a start again, your your biggest cost, the wages for players, comes on. Personally, at Tama, we didn't budget for fans coming back. We budgeted different scenarios, including having no fans for the whole season. This was in March. And, and then when you, and it, when you looked at it, it was obvious that this was potentially going to be a scenario and, and a second wave was going to come. You couldn't have, as I say, an isolated COVID bubble. So this problem was always going to be there. And it was plain as a nose in your face. So, sorry, I, I, I'm just explaining why uh, this, this then turned up as, as a solution. One of your questions was, why did I stand up against it? Well, because I, I keep on saying this. Everybody in the game today don't respect the fact that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, you know, we, we have, we have, we have a, a responsibility. Necky and I are stakeholders for the club, and um, we only look after it. We're temporary custodians, but equally we're temporary custodians of the game. And therefore, what you need to do is to look at not next year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So for me, it's not just my fan base now. It's the fan base in the future that we need to look at. And that's why I stood out against it, because this was a patent land grab. It was an opportunistic land grab that everybody saw through it. So, you know, why it was, you know, we should back it. I think also, I'll, I'll finish now on my rant, but the, 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 the question as to whether the, why the chairman came out and backed it from the EFL, my view on that, that's for them to answer. And, you know, it, it feels to the outsider looking in that they, it, it was almost a, 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 a show of stooges who said, well, show me the money. And, 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 and what happened in the meeting I was in was it was corralled into, uh, if, I can, if I can paraphrase it, it was corralled into, well, you get three times the money. Uh, do you want us to consider, continue looking at that? But let's not debate the issues, the governance issues, <laughs> which clearly this brought up because almost it's too complicated. It was too complicated to debate in that meeting, but, you know, what are people going to say? And there wasn't any vote anyway, so it was just really a temperature check. And then it was pushed out that, you know, look, the EFL are all behind it. I, I've had other chairmen ring me since and say, look, you know, we, we, we didn't say anything, and we understand, you know, you've gone out on a limb, um, and, uh, you know, we back you. That's the type of backing I really want. When you're in the trenches, let's go over the top, lads. Yes, hang on a minute, I'm just tying my shoelaces. I, you know, um, Sorry, that's a, that's my view of the world. Just talking about what happened yesterday, um, I think for anybody who woke up to the news on Sunday and read about Project Big Picture, no matter what you thought of it, it always felt pretty unlikely that it would 
you know, it would pass, it would be cleared by the other 14, 11 Premier League clubs who are effectively being having the, any power taken off them. Um, and therefore, what happened yesterday in the Premier League meeting, which saw it apparently eventually unanimously objected towards, wasn't a massive surprise. But what we have seen since then is a in the same statement, the Premier League have said that £20 million will be available as grants to League One and League Two sides, and, and that £30 million will be available as interest-free loans to any clubs who may be facing the imminent threat of, of, of ceasing to, to exist um, due to COVID reasons. We've also had David Bernstein, a, a proposal of his about an independent regulatory governing body, um, looking over football as well, which I think kind of aligns with what you were saying earlier. I mean, is there something to be said here that the debate that was caused by a proposal that you quite clearly had massive moral objections to has actually sped up the process of getting the game and its governance and its finances the attention that it needs. I, I think it's a byproduct of it rather than an object of it. And I think that's the difference. So, you know, people shouldn't be claiming credit that we did this and actually we've now stimulated the debate. I think it was a byproduct and an accidental byproduct. It wasn't the intention. Um, but yes. I mean, quite aside from, from Project Big Picture, Mark, the. the what is your reaction to to the news yesterday, the financial packages that, that do appear to be offered uh, from the Premier League to League One and, and League Two clubs that, you know, the, the, the numbers being suggested, which are smaller than those suggested by Project Big Picture, but which do seem actually, you know, de- definitively forthcoming uh, to, to help theoretically with League One and League Two clubs immediate future and to make sure that that no one should go out of business as a result specifically of the financial impact of COVID-19? Yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say, and I think the the, the, the DCMS Minister Oliver had said that it's a, it's a good start. It is a good start. Listen, this can be solved, to my mind, from a, from a financial perspective if you if you do the job properly, because there are there are funds out there that want to actually invest in in the game in a way or lend to the game in a way, and that can be constructed. That that's not beyond the wit of man. Look, I think it, what it does is it, it gives some kind of comfort to the L1 and L2 clubs. Um, I'm pretty certain because the, the, the EFL will have the opportunity to probably leverage some of their assets and and, uh, and provide you know emergency funding as well. So I think we can get through on that basis, and, and that that's great because it settles everybody down a little bit. Um, the issue is that the EFL and 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 you know I'd be I'd be hypocritical if if I wasn't really saying this. The EFL consists of the championship clubs as well, and that's where I think there's a major problem. And that's where again you go back to the same exercise, but you have to get the money to sort out the championship clubs short-term problems as well and I think that's where the focus will shift in the course of the next weeks or so 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 it, it's a great start um, I, I think the DCMS I keep saying this that I think they should contribute something if you look at the, the the hospitality industry that's being hammered they get some benefit from, from from the government but they have the advantage of whilst they're shut down they can lay their staff off um, and horrible thing to say, but it's true. Whereas whilst we're shut down from revenue streams, we cannot, and our major cost is there in terms of playing payers and staff. That's a big difference between us and the hospitality industry. So I think it merits some government support. I think the government support that comes in, as I said, as I said before, has to be conditional. Uh, and then you, you, you weld all that together and you get the short-term solution and you get the framework for the long-term solution as well. And the framework for the long-term solution um, I think that that has to be pulled together. And, and the emphasis around that 
for me, whether it's a regulator or whatever it is, has to be um, external and led in some way because I, I, I have little confidence that the, the current powers that be in football, because as I've said before, have eloquently demonstrated that they can't do it. Well, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Fingers crossed a conclusion to this debate will come very, very soon. And both financially, EFL clubs will be on sound footing short term and long term. And the governance of the game is uh, is resolved fairly and fans get more representation. And uh, best of luck to Tramway Rovers for the rest of the season. Thanks so much, guys. It's so great that we're able to dial up people like Mark Palios and they actually accept our calls as well because he is so well placed to talk about these issues and some of those statements some of those opinions in that interview will stick with me because you know not only as the chairman of Tramere Rovers as a, a real advocate for sustainability and football for not spending beyond your means um, but also as someone who has been in a in a position of um, well, high management in a football context outside of Tramere Rovers with the FA, of course, uh, a fair time ago now. But as someone who, you know, he kept talking about restructuring and that made it clear for those who don't know that, you know, in his professional life, Mark Palios is a man who, who knows a lot about finance in general uh, and about corporate structures and about uh, governance. He, he really uh, is fascinating to, to listen to. And, and George, it was it was good as well because... There's been a, a lot of, well, there actually haven't been a lot of chairmen coming out publicly this week, but there have been a few. And I would say we, we seem to hear a lot from the same EFL chairman uh, in, in, in these circumstances. We hear a lot from Dara McAntony, from Andy Pilly, from Andy Holt, from Mark as well. These, it's, it's really valuable to have chairmen speaking openly and honestly about what they believe. Of course, they don't always believe in the, in the same things as well. So it was really interesting to hear what Mark had to say about Project Big Picture. Uh, some disdain for, for the project, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, um, but also to talk about the future. Uh, I, I must admit, I, I sort of raise my eyebrows whenever he, he says how simple he thinks the 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 future restructuring could be or should be and you sort of hope well if it is to be that simple then hopefully mark will be a, a part of it uh, at the top level because some of his peers i think it's fair to say and their actions make me think like it's not actually that simple for, for the reasons that he said you know it's such a broad church not only in the efl um, but all the other stakeholders as well to use the term that he used that the the Premier League, uh, even the FA, that there's there's self-interest that fills every crevice of these discussions that I think makes it really difficult to get anything done. So I, I guess I'm encouraged ultimately by the way in which he spoke uh, about the future and the way that we can restructure the game uh, to, to make it more sustainable. Um, what did you think about our, our chat with Mark Palios? What, what are you thinking at the moment uh, about the, the immediate future and the long-term future of, of the English game? So it's a big topic at the moment. Yeah, I think I am. Although I, I know Mark, it was kind of the one answer where he didn't necessarily give us as much. And, and I think because he was a, a vocal opponent to it I mean I think the one thing from my perspective as somebody who's both a fan of the EFL and somebody who works um, who you know needs the EFL to continue to be what it is professionally um, I'm just very relieved that that these conversations are now mainstream but what Mark was saying about the fans element the need to look at look as fans as stakeholders look at how we can give fans a voice because 
that is a case in point here. If you've got supposedly 90% of EFL clubs supporting it, whilst 90% of the fans are against it, and that goes down as a win for the EFL, something isn't quite right. That has to change. And and talk of, of David Bernstein's um, proposal, of which, you know, if this is the first you're hearing of it, you can read about it uh, on The Athletic, where there would be an independent governing body. And therefore, you would think that is a movement towards giving power back to the fans because you'd expect the people in the governing body to be well-connected people within football without, you know, without a need to um, self-serve then that has to be a good thing. So fingers crossed financially, you know, the, the 20 million um, in grants and the 30 million available in interest-free loans is a start. There's still a long way to go and I'm pretty sure can, talks will be ongoing. Fingers crossed as well, as Mark says, that is the end of, of any idea, at least in the short term, of of certain clubs in the Premier League taking over the governance. And, you know, we now have to work out ways to, again, find a way to fill the revenue gap that is currently around. And it was good to see this week as well that the petition that we spoke about uh, on the pod last week uh, around getting fans back into stadiums, um, a date has been set in Parliament for that to be discussed. It's the 9th of November. So three weeks away, which feels like it is, it's quite far away, frustratingly. But again, it, it could be it could be worse. So it's good again. I'm talking about how uh, the long and short-term financial issues in the AFL were headline news this week, in three weeks' time, it's going to be discussed in Parliament, and it will be again. So that has to be positive. And at the heart of all of this, at the very base of all of this, is football. What do we like talking about football? So let's do that now. Still to come on this episode, our preview of the EFL weekend. But first, our chat with Adam Murray. This season, the Premier League is going to be a little different. But at Paddy Power, we're trying to look at the upside. Avoid unnecessary journeys? That's Fulham's trip to Anfield off. Self-isolate? Some midfielders do that very effectively. Avoid European travel? Shouldn't be a problem for Everton fans. When you think about it, not that much has changed, really. New normal? Same old football. Just like Paddy Power's Acker Cracker. Get a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus-fold Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10. Min odds 1-5 to five on each leg. Online exclusive excludes. Shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus BeGambleAware.org. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Woodrow sends it across and it's put away. Extraordinary. Adur has scored in injury time and Barnsley have given themselves a fighting chance of staying up here. Great to be joined today by Barnsley's current caretaker boss, Adam Murray. Adam, you were in this position last season. You're back in it now for for the first game um, of this spell. What's it like to be back in the hot seat? Um, Interesting. I think last time when I uh, I took over as caretaker manager for them few games, we were uh, probably in a little bit of a uh, worse position than we're in at the minute. We, We hadn't won... Uh, in a lot of games and our, our form weren't great. Obviously, this time we've lost our manager for different reasons and I think we're we're probably in a better place than we were last time now. We, we obviously aren't where we want to be in the league, but our performances haven't been uh, too bad. We've been unlucky in a few games and um, there's a lot of good positive work that's gone in. So we've got a decent platform to uh, to build from and hopefully that'll start Saturday. 
I'm interested to pick up on what you said there about the, the slightly different circumstances this time around compared to last year. Of course, Daniel Stendhal uh, had been sacked by the club at this time. As you mentioned, Gerhard Struber left the club for, for a new opportunity in, in MLS in, in uh, America. What's the difference in, in atmosphere around the place? Or is there a difference in atmosphere that you can, that, that's you know, obvious with the manager having left for, for what he might consider a, a better job, perhaps, rather than being dismissed because of uh, noticeably poor form. It, it, is there a noticeable difference in atmosphere around the club based on, on, on how things ended with the previous manager? Um, I think it's always, when you lose a manager for whatever reason, it always uh, is a tough time for uh, the initial couple of days because it's, there's a little bit of the unknown. There's a little bit of, um, you get players that are feeling a little bit worried about what's around the corner. So there's always that that you have to deal with. I think for, for us at the minute, with, with how we finished last season and what we managed to achieve in the end in staying up was a miracle, really. So we, there's a real positive atmosphere around the, uh, the dressing room at the minute. We were, we were all gutted that uh, Gerhard left to, to obviously go and um, have a new opportunity. But we, we, we made sure that straight away we kind of allowed the players to um, have their own conversations about that and get their own feelings out about that. Because obviously Gerhard brought some uh, some of his own players in from from Austria, so they were very close with him. So we've had to allow that process, but then we got our focus straight back on to what we have to achieve now and and the job in hand. And um, like we said to the players, at the end of the day, we, we we're all professionals. We all represent the football club, and we want to make sure that when we go into Saturday, we're, we're all prepared to give our, our supporters one hundred percent. You mentioned the miracle of the uh, surviving relegation last season. And, and it's fair to say that the 12 or so months since Gerhard Struber has been at the club was a very successful one. Uh, Ali and I on the podcast were, were really impressed by what we saw of him as a coach. And you've been part of that backroom staff as well. So, so what have you learned over the last year or so working under, under such an impressive manager? Um, I think that the biggest thing that personally as a coach I've took from it is probably the detail that um, we went into over them 12 months. I think we're very lucky here at Barnsley that we have a, a club philosophy. Um, so we, the, the DNA kind of runs all the way through the club. So as a coach, it makes it, one, it's enjoyable to coach because it's a great way of playing. But then when you work with a coach that's got a background of being an expert in that philosophy, uh, it gives you that extra edge because you, you get to work with him day to day very closely and and pick out the details that make it so effective. So uh, for me personally, as a coach, it's been a great learning curve over the last 12 months and something that I will uh, carry forward with me. You talk about that overarching club philosophy, something that, that as George mentioned, we've enjoyed when watching Gerhard's Barnsley side, uh, Daniel's Barnsley side as well, when winning promotion from, from League One. For those who haven't watched as much Barnsley, aside from highlights, let's say, would you be able to explain more or less what you understand to be that, that club philosophy, the, the sort of playing style that, that, that has existed previously and that you have to sort of keep going in your interim spell in charge? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing for us is we... We try and create a unbelievably high intensity and tempo in possession and out of possession. I think the out of possession part of our game is probably our biggest strength. We we like to press, we like to counter press, um, but within that, uh, there's a lot of detail that goes into it. It's not just a case of running after the ball and trying to win it back as quick as you can, um, which some people kind of associate with pressing. There's a lot of 
detail that goes into to making that work. Um, and then on the flip side of it, when we're in possession, we, we try and penetrate as quickly as we can and, and cause opposition problems. And last season, I think it was a great example of, of how that can work. We caused all the big teams problems, especially towards the, the back end of the season. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a philosophy that um, you, you need everybody to buy into. You, you need the players to, to understand how it can be effective and get their buy-in. And I think once you do that and you get everybody on the same page, it is a really effective way of playing. You've always been an advocate of the kind of more technical sides of, of coaching, whether it's kind of analytics or, or sports science. And, and you mentioned before the needs to find marginal gains and you're kind of touching on it there, talking about, about the pressing mentality as well. Do, do you feel like this is something you can implement in, in such a short time since becoming caretaker? Or do you feel like, as you kind of mentioned, it's part of the club philosophy anyway, and therefore it's easy to put your stamp on, on what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think the it, it was a little bit the same uh, the last time I was in this position that we we all understand how we play and we're, we're not going to change for anybody. So it's a case of sometimes we will get picked off. Uh, sometimes it does come undone. Um, but the biggest thing for us is we have a plan. We go into every game with a match plan that everybody's clear on, everybody's focused on. Um, in terms of putting my own bits on it, I don't really like to do that in these situations too much because we, we don't know what's around the corner and that the last thing I need to do is be confusing the players. Um, I think what it does have to be is it has to be situational. So at the minute, we're not scoring enough goals. We're not creating enough chances from our, um, our good opportunities or our good uh, counter-attacking, counter-pressing moments. So that is something that we can work on and we have worked on. So it's more tweaking the little things that aren't right at the moment, uh, but not changing changing whole things you come up against Bristol City this weekend a, a team who are four from four we spoke to to their head coach Dean Holden last week about their style of play and 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 the sort of things that they've implemented this season which have brought them success in the short term it's obviously a, a tricky start how have you approached the um you know the the opposition analysis for this one how much will you adapt Barnsley's style because of the strength of Bristol City uh, having had I guess a bit longer than usual over the international break to to really plan your game plan for this game um, in terms of our our overall framework of the, the game plan it won't change we'll, we'll go after when we'll be, be aggressive we'll, we'll make it a tough place to come and we'll, we'll want to stress them out as much as we can um, we're obviously aware of their strengths as well they're a very attacking team they've got uh, players playing in positions that like to get into the box and get get into the box on a, a number of occasions. But we, we feel like we can nullify that if we're right. So um, in, in terms of our game plan and, and my thinking, it, it has to be all, be all about us. I think we can, we can sit back and say the top of the league and they've not lost a football game, but we're in the championship and we, we've shown last year that in any game, anybody can beat anybody. And especially at our place, we, we feel confident that we can and put on a real good performance Saturday. During your caretaker spell last season, the performances were, were pretty good. They were an improvement on what we'd seen before. And there was some talk that you might get the permanent job. Are you, are you thinking about that at all this time around? Are you hoping that if you put in some good performances, you, you could be getting the full-time job or are you just concentrating on this one match at a time? Um, just, I think for, for me personally, and I, I came to this decision very quickly last time I was in this position that I can't allow my my focus to drift onto me and and be selfish with my thinking because there's too much going on at the minute um, for me to do that. I think if I did that, it would be a um, a bad decision for everybody, and I don't think we'd have the the, the focus that we needed in the group. Uh, for for my my journey, I feel like I'm in a real good place. Uh, 
I really enjoy the position and the role that I work at this club. At some point uh, in the future, I will want to go back into being a head coach, but I'm not really in a in a rush for that. Um, I've learned so much over the last two or three years that have shaped my philosophy um, and made me a lot clearer in my mind of how I want to play and how I want to go about things. And I'm still on that learning journey. So um, if something comes up that that fits my my vision, then great. If not, um, I love the place I'm working and the, the people that I'm working with. So it's a, it's a win-win really for me. Well, Adam, uh, what you said about the game this week against Bristol City certainly whet my appetite for what I think might be one of the most entertaining games this weekend. We, we thank you very much for your time today and wish you all the best in, in your current interim job as, as head coach of Barnsley and the club all the best for the future as well. Thank you for your time. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much. That was Adam Murray there. A real pleasure to speak to him about the current situation at Barnsley as he takes charge on an interim basis. We were quite interested in in his interim spell last year as well, George. He's definitely someone that we enjoy listening to when he talks about the game and we're very grateful for his time. A tough test against Bristol City this weekend, it's fair to say. Let's look ahead now at the weekend in the EFL. We've picked one game each to preview. That's coming up next here on the Totally Football League show, Extra Time. Right, it's time to preview the weekend EFL action with our sponsors, Paddy Power. The championship returns. George and I have picked a game each from all three leagues that we think is the most the most mouth-watering fixture, easy for you to say, uh, this <laughs> weekend. You can lead George Ehrlich to water, but you cannot make him drink. George, take it away. Wow. Um, I don't know what to say in, in reply to that, except just to tell you that I'm going to Ewood Park for my most exciting game. And I feel like we've spoken a lot about Blackburn, but it's their opposition, Nottingham Forest, that I'm more interested in here. We'll do Blackburn some lip service because they have, of course, been very, very good this season. Um, last time we saw them at Ewood, it was a nil-nil draw against Cardiff, but that came on the back of two wins against Wickham and Derby, 5-0 and 4-0. So three games... Three clean sheets, nine goals scored, seven points. It's all looking pretty good for Tony Mowbray. And if you haven't listened to mine and Ali's podcasts or this podcast over the last couple of weeks, keep an eye out for Tyrese Dolan because he is a very, very good, very exciting young teenage right winger who we think will go very far. And Adam Armstrong with five goals in four games already this season. But it's all about Forrest, this one, and the return of the nicest man in football, TM, Chris Uton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting though because we we saw after his appointment at Forest replacing Sabri Lamucci, uh, the Athletics writer Nottingham Forest writer Paul Taylor did a piece with him which kind of focused on this this mythical well not mythical because that's saying he isn't nice and he is actually very nice but this legend of Hutton being the nicest man in football and clearly Hutton was very keen to distance himself from that he said I have always had a tough side it's not something that, that has developed you cannot afford not to have that. Then about two paragraphs later, he says, I'll be trying my utmost to bring the big and beautiful city of Nottingham back on the football map. So lovely. a bit of a, uh, a juxtaposition there with him saying he's not the nicest man and then calling Nottingham big and beautiful, which I absolutely love. Uh, but it's just going to be interesting to see what kind of a tune Hewton can get out of this forest side, a forest side who've been so out of form and out of luck, I would say, as well, after you know the way that they've lost some of these games recently putting in fairly decent performances, not getting the rub of the green, coming against, um, coming up against very, very informed goalkeepers as well. 
Um, but Houghton comes in with a squad who finished seventh last year and have been added to with 13 new signings. With expectations still fairly high, Paul Taylor's piece again that was released yesterday speaks to the likes of, of uh, you know, senior players such as Michael Dawson and Cyrus Christie, uh, Luke Freeman. People have been brought in this summer who, who are still very much hoping for a promotion push. They say that's the reason why they joined the club. And looking at Dawson specifically, you know, specifically he is the the senior pro, the, the club mm. captain. Uh, and he says, I said to you when we spoke at the start of the season that it's just about getting started, about that first home win, about winning for the first time on the road. That remains the case. The sooner they come, the sooner we will gain confidence. The games come quickly now, and that is an opportunity, a chance to get those points as quickly as possible. So sometimes in this situation, you see players and managers talk down the importance of these early games. But Dawson, for him, it's quite the opposite. They need to get points on the board. They need to get wins. And that starts on Saturday at Ewood Park. And we're going to get our first glimpse of what Chris Hewton's Nottingham Forest are going to look like. The odds suggest it's going to be tricky for them. Blackburn are 10 to 11 odds on favourites. The draw 23 to 10 and Forest 14 to 5. But looking back at previous times, Hewton's first game record is pretty good. So we might see a bit of a reaction here. Beautiful stuff there, George. Really excited about that one. Also excited about Luton versus Stoke City this weekend, the Nathan Jones derby. I- I'm sure that the listeners of the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, already know the Nathan Jones story. But just a, a brief overview, if you will. Luton meets Jones. Luton have gone from championship down to non-league, back to League Two, all in the space of a decade. They are not listless, but they could do with a transformative manager. They give Nathan Jones his first job as a manager, and he helps transform the fortunes of the Hatters, winning promotion from the fourth tier, and then immediately taking them to the top of the third tier in their first season back at that level. But... Jones had his head turned by sexy Stoke City and leaves Luton and their fans in the lurch somewhat halfway through the season uh, and becomes slightly unpopular, I think it's fair to say, with the fan base. Thankfully, old flame Mick Harford takes them up anyway uh, and Luton and Stoke are at the same level in the Championship last season. But they didn't actually get to take on Nathan Jones's Stoke in the Championship because by the time that fixture comes around in December, Jones is out. He leaves Stoke after just eight points from 15 games, rock bottom of the Championship. During the pandemic, Luton decided to make a change. Graham Jones out, Nathan Jones back in. Six points from safety they were at that time, with nine games to go. And starting with fixtures against Preston, Swansea and Leeds, it looked like a tough task, but he made it look quite easy with a gang of players that he has been through an awful lot with, highs and lows as well. He kept Luton up, Michael O'Neill, who walked into Stoke in a perilous position, kept Stoke up comfortably. And Jones and Luton, it just works. Stoke and O'Neill, I think that kind of works as well. The season for them hasn't started with fireworks, but it's been certainly solid, if not spectacular. Stoke have 
one win, two draws and a defeat. Sort of six out of ten start, you'd say. They've only scored two goals, which is concerning, but they've only conceded three. So probably uh, not one for entertainment purposes for the neutral watching Stoke games. Could say the same about Luton because their defence has been fantastic, only conceding two goals on their way to three wins from their first four. Nine points from a possible 12, a brilliant start for a team that only just survived relegation last season. Um, It's all going very, very well for Nathan Jones in his second spell in charge of Luton. Excitingly, we're going to hear more about this because a little birdie tells me that Nathan Jones will be on the Totally Football League show on Monday. So do make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed. You'll hear about this game from his perspective and so much more as well. This game unlikely to be a goal fest, but for me, the narrative in the dugouts is more than enough for me to think this is the exciting game in the championship this weekend. As for Paddy Power, they have stoked the favourites 13 to 10 despite going away from home to Kenilworth Road. Luton 15 to 8 in this one, and the draw 21 to 10. Again, don't expect a goal fest, but we're going to enjoy looking back at this game, whatever the result uh, after its completion. Moving down to League One now, George, and I know that the game I've chosen is the most exciting, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing what the second most exciting is. Well, Oxford United games have come <laughs> with a lot of intrigue this season, it's fair to say. So I'm going to London Road, Peterborough, 19 to 20 favourites here against Oxford, who are 12 to 5, the draw 13 to 5. We'll start with Peterborough who are starting to trend in a pretty good direction. They've won their two home league games so far. They've won three games in all competitions. Those two home wins were two one wins against Fleetwood and a 3-1 win against Swindon, two sides we expect to be fairly competitive at least this season. We've seen consistently in the last couple of years, Peterborough seem to to create trios up top. And at the moment, it's Siriki Dembele, Johnson Clark-Harris and Sammy Smodic who are really starting to click. Even though he hasn't been in amongst the goals, Dembele winning lots of plaudits with his performances up up front alongside Clark-Harris with Smodic just dropping in behind. Uh, on Saturday against Swindon, we saw an all-new midfield duo of Reese Brown and Ethan Hamilton. Reese Brown, a really interesting player, a, a guy who who came through at Birmingham, played in lots of the England youth teams, went to Forest Green, got his big move to Huddersfield, where last season he he didn't even feature in the league. Went out on loan to to Peterborough. They brought him back on loan again, and and he showed what he can do with that class going forward. A really nicely taken goal on Saturday, his first goal for the club, playing alongside Hamilton, who who joins with with good pedigree from Manchester United, a more defensive-minded player. And it feels like that duo, that pivot in midfield, could be a really strong one to young guys as well. And Jack Taylor is the other option who's been a massive success since joining since Barnet as well. It's just a team littered with quality. And we're now starting to see, even with Ivan Tony moving on in the summer, the big hole up front, we're seeing that this is still a side that's maybe a little bit better balanced than it was last season, less reliance on Tony for goals. And, uh, and they're certainly showing that they are worthy of, of their billing as one of the favourites to win this league. For Oxford, it's been a little bit more difficult. Um, just the one win so far, which came away at Accrington Stanley. Um, but the game was draw, was, was, was level at one all before a, a red card meant they were able to ease clear at uh, 4-1. Last Saturday, they had 31 shots to 14 against Gillingham in a game they lost 3-1 with Cameron Brannigan and Matt Taylor missing effectively open goals uh, in a game that Carl Robinson says you know, never again will he have a team who creates so many chances and miss so many as well. But this season has been difficult 
off the pitch for Oxford. Uh, not only before the Accrington game did their did their team bus fail to start because the COVID disinfectant spray got into the mechanism which prevented the bus driver from starting the car. Effectively, the bus itself was drunk, which meant that the players had to get cars and taxis to the game. Uh, they've also had two matches, the same game postponed within hours of kickoff. Crew Alexandra coming down a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday. Uh, COVID positive COVID tests meant that that had to be called off last minute. And then this week on Tuesday, about again an hour, an hour and a half, two hours before kickoff, um, the club were informed that the crew were unable to fulfil the fixture. The reason for that is still not necessarily clear. I think Mark Palios earlier in the programme touched on that it sounds like it may have been a, a public health um, concern rather than anything inside the, the football family. Um, but for Oxford, it's been very stop-start. I mean, to have to prepare for two games, um, which neither go ahead. They ended up playing a 50-minute friendly, in, intra-squad friendly on, on Tuesday, which was reported on by the local press, purely because they were all at the stadium ready to go. So it's not an easy game for this to come into. I, I think we can expect to see a side who are, are desperate both to play and to put right the wrongs of Saturday. And when you look at this with a longer lens, and we go back to the start of the season, two sides who have had proper title aspirations and a wobbly start for Oxford shouldn't change that either. So this is going to be one of those games, we said it a few times in these previews, one of these games where we're going to find out a little bit more about where we should think these teams stand Mm. probably in in the tier of League One uh, on Saturday afternoon. I think we found out last season or two seasons ago rather that uh, certainly in footballing terms, looking at something with a long lens as Marcelo Bielsa and his intern found out is actually against the spirit of the game, if not illegal in the rules of the EFL. So you've got to be careful there what you're looking at with a long lens. I'm going for Charlton <laughs> Athletic versus Wigan Athletic, the Athletic Derby. Uh, that's a free guerrilla marketing idea for our friends over at the Athletic there. I'm sure that's one they'll pick up and run with. Um, it's, it's, it's two teams that are linked well, they probably wouldn't like to be linked because they both relegated from the championship last season. Um, both of them shrouded in ownership issues at the time. Wigan most significantly in a footballing sense because that points deduction took them from mid-table essentially to relegation. Um, Charlton, no points deducted, but you have to say that the conditions that they were working under were not ideal and uh, that has been sorted. We spoke last week with Jack Pitt Brook last week about Thomas Sangard taking over Charlton. The transfer embargo has been lifted uh, and they're making the most of it. Four players in uh, in the last week, Chris Gunter, Omar Bogle, Ryan Innes and Ian Matson, who's a young loanee from Chelsea. Uh, they had Conor Gallagher, you might remember, at the first half of last season and Chelsea essentially removed him from Charlton in January to send him to, to what they thought was a better place in, in Swansea City. And I like to think that the loan of Ian Matson, who's a very highly rated young left back, is a sort of an olive branch from Chelsea to apologise from that. Looking forward to seeing what all of those guys offer and add to this Charlton side. But Lee Boyer wants more. We've obviously got the transfer deadline on Friday evening. Boyer thinking there might still be two more signings through the door. So um, Charlton can start to look forward. From a Wigan perspective, that takeover is not sorted, but we think almost sorted. It's all gone a little quiet since it was revealed a few weeks ago that an offer had been uh, accepted from uh, someone based in Spain. There are a few reports doing the rounds as to who those prospective owners are. Um, It has gone quiet, but I think 
you know, that's not necessarily a concerning sign. I've no doubt they're doing some pretty serious due diligence uh, and EFL owners and directors tests as well do take a couple of weeks to, to get through. And we do want those tests to be strong. So I'm, I'm sort of all for that. Next week, I think we might see some movement on this front. They have been able to pick up Will Keane, Wigan. And I think that's a shrewd signing, really. They, they needed another senior striker to sort of lessen the workload of, of Joe Garner. And I think Keane, uh, in a similar mould to Garner, really, can be a good target man uh, if he can stay fit. He has had problems with injuries. So that's what Wigan are up to. That's what Charlton are up to as they come head-to-head this weekend. Four points from four games for Charlton and six points from five games for Wigan. So an OK start for both teams. Plenty that needs building on as well. Should be a good game, this one. I'm looking forward to it. Paddy Power are as well. Charlton... <laughs> <laughs> Even money favourites for this athletic derby. Wigan 12 to 5 and the draw also 12 to 5. So Paddy certainly fancy Charlton. I, d- I dare say Wigan will fancy their chances after putting in some, some pretty good performances so far, despite a tricky situation off the pitch. Down to League Two. George, take it away, please. South End against Cheltenham. And people listening are thinking, why are you picking the whipping boys of League Two against one of the title favourites for your most exciting game of the weekend? But there's more to this than meets the eye, in my opinion. Um, Southend were desperately unlucky on Saturday, uh, hosting uh, another very good side, another side who in the playoffs last season, in Exeter, another side who have started the season very well, like Cheltenham. And they were 2-1 up in the game, about to get their first win of the season after such a difficult 12, 24 months, uh, it finally felt as if they were getting back to where they needed to be. They'd, they'd drawn their previous game as well the weekend before, but only for Alex Fisher to get the ball in the 94th minute and Ben went into the top left with his left foot meant that it was just one point instead of three. But that shouldn't overshadow the fact that this was a much improved performance from Southend, who it looked a couple of weeks ago like they were probably going to be you know, cast adrift at the bottom of League Two. But two points in two games, um, a much better defensive performance and the arrival of Keziah Sterling, who looked very lively on debut. I think this is his fourth loan spell in the EFL in the last two years and that was just his second start. So you can see he's certainly somebody who needs, you know, minutes and needs time to, to bed in. And when you think of the, the, the trajectory of his loan spells, where he started at, uh, at Sunderland, then was at Doncaster, then ended up going to Leighton Orient just before um, COVID hit and now is at South End. He's trying to find his level, but there's certainly a player in there and South End are going to hope to profit from that. Um, and they'll be looking to come here against uh, a Cheltenham side and finally get that three points. And Cheltenham started the season so well, you and I often waxing lyrical about them and Mike Duff. But midweek, you may have missed it because there wasn't much football going on on Tuesday night, but they were beaten 3-1 by Ian Holloway's Grimsby side. Um, this was to put it uh, bluntly, probably the biggest shock of the season so far. Probably only would have been usurped by South End had they held on against Exeter on Saturday. A little look into the data, the XG, that side of things, shows that this was a fairly fortuitous win for Grimsby. The XG spelled out uh, three expected goals for the home side in Cheltenham and about 0.5 for uh, for Grimsby. So maybe the um, score was, was the wrong way around in terms of balance of chances. But that's very unlike Cheltenham. We don't see them concede many goals. We, we certainly think of them being, if nothing else, very, very solid. Uh, and this now has the look of, of a possible banana skin. Southend, the wounded beast, who go into this game with so much more belief, having put themselves in that position against Exeter. So 
last week I flagged up Pompey MK Dons as being, you know, the the home banker on the face of things, but maybe a banana skin. Pompey did win that game 2-1, but very fortuitously with just four shots. So I'm now going to say that this could be the similar one for this Saturday. Maybe if, you, if you're going to put Cheltenham in your acca, just think twice. I don't think Southend are quite as poor as maybe we thought. I like the idea of a, a Robin, as is Cheltenham Town's nickname, uh, slipping on a, a banana skin. I'm not sure they've got the weight to actually cause the slippage, but I dare no. say we'll find out this weekend. Uh, nicely done. I'm going to Port Vale against Salford City for my game of the weekend in, in League Two. Uh, I haven't got a derby name for this one after the Nathan Jones derby and the Athletic derby, but this is certainly in EFL terms. Uh, it's it's the old timers against the, the disruptors uh, to coin a, a modern phrase, in 1892, Port Vale became founder members, not of the Football League, but of the Football League's second division. And in 1992, a group of young players in the Manchester United Academy, I think you know the rest. Um, mm. Being a bit flippant there, Salford City have existed for, for 80 years, but Salford in their current form, well, I think we know a lot about them. Many of us have watched a whole documentary about it uh, as recently as May 2015, so five years and, what, four or five months ago, uh, Salford were in the eighth tier of English football, and that was the highest level they'd ever played at. Uh, but four promotions in five years, and here we are now with Salford City, not only in League Two, but one of the favourites for promotion this year. Port Vale, by contrast, have never played top-flight football, but they have spent 41 seasons in the second tier, 46 seasons in the third tier, and 22 seasons in the fourth tier, of the Football League. George, no team has played more second tier seasons or Football League seasons in total, 109 without ever reaching the top flight. Um, the resources of the Salford ownership group are well known, the ambition well known. And this week we were reminded of their high expectations, if you will. Graham Alexander sacked by the Salford City ownership group with the team fifth in the table after five games, unbeaten with two wins and three draws. Now, because of their place in the table, I guess, because Graham, Ander, Graham Alexander is a very popular man and, uh, and, and manager as well, there has been a, a lot of uh, dismay in the media about this, uh, about this being quite an unfair sacking and that Alexander deserved more time. I think it's hard to argue with that. The season is still very young. Having said that, we, we've all seen the documentary. Uh, in fact, Graham Alexander becoming manager of Salford came about because the same owners sacked a joint manager partnership in, in, in Morley and Johnson after three promotions in four years because they felt they could get a better manager in, in Graham Alexander, who could raise the ceiling of the club. And and I don't particularly agree with the, the, the serious cutthroat nature of it, but I guess that's kind of what we're seeing now. Um, they might have accepted a consolidation season last year coming mid-table in League Two, but I, I doubt that's the case now. I think promotion probably non-negotiable, especially with the salary cap being introduced. Um, there has been quite a large reaction to Paul Scholes being appointed as, as interim manager. You might say an overreaction. Uh, if you want a bit more context, I'm led to believe it would have been Warren Joyce appointed interim, but he was self-isolating. So 
Uh, Scolzi steps in. Roy Keane is the current favourite for the managerial job. Personally, again, not to go against the grain, but I would be very surprised if it ends up being Keane who's appointed manager. But it's certainly one to to watch this space. It'll be box office, of course, um, if he is. It'd be very good for another season of the documentary, although I'm not sure if that's forthcoming. As for Port Vale, well, again, like Salford, they're expected to be at least a, a top seven side this season, I think. Um, they started the season they did start the season quite well, but having countered quite a large footballing issue, George, they can't seem to score a goal. Three games now without a goal. They've lost 1-0 to Morecambe and then Carlisle in their last few games, which has chucked up quite a few concerns about the style of play, about whether or not they're, they're good enough at creating and taking chances to really be a top seven team. Uh, I think things will settle down. I do think Vale are still very sturdy at the back. I think that's a good foundation. I think they've got some players that join this summer who I'd expect to have more of an impact going forward uh, than they have done so far. So I'm not too concerned about Vale this, uh, just yet. Be interesting to see how Scholes' Salford play against them this weekend. Really excited about this game. And Paddy Power's thoughts on it are also kind of interesting. Vale have got a brilliant home record over the last 18 months. 31-20 to 20, uh, they are to win this game. Salford City 13-8 to 8, and the draw 11-5. to 5. So I think that re- represents uh, a fixture that, that Paddy doesn't really know how to call, to be honest. And I can see why, because it's two decent sides who haven't been playing very well recently, but have got plenty of good players on the pitch. There's our EFL weekend preview. Thanks to our sponsors, Paddy Power, for helping us with that. We hope that after a week where off-field matters have dominated EFL discourse, that you, like us, are looking forward to this week's actual football. Um, We hope that you will subscribe to this podcast feed if you're not already, because on Monday, the guys from the Totally Football League show, Normal Time, as I call it, will be joined by Nathan Jones. I think I might have let the cat out of the bag a little here, or let the hatter out of the bag a bit here, but Jones will join them on the podcast. He is fantastic value always. Uh, Certainly speaks his mind and has a lot of interesting thoughts about the game uh, and hopefully about the championship this season as well as Luton Town. So make sure you join the guys on Monday for that one make sure you join us next week there's absolutely no chance of predicting what we will be talking about because there's a lot of very fast moving situations currently uh, surrounding the EFL but rest assured we will do our best to bring you all of the news from on and off the pitch we have our first midweek set of fixtures next week so we look forward to running you through the key results from then thanks for joining us this week this has been the Totally Football League show extra time in association with Paddy Pan. You've been listening to the Totally Football League Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. Muddy Knees Media.